1: november 2118 the sounds of laughter and music were dying down on the thousandth floor the party breaking up by bits and pieces as even the rowdiest guests finally stumbled into the elevators and down to their homes the floor-to-ceiling windows were squares of velvety darkness though in the distance the sun was quietly rising the skyline turning ochre and pale pink and a soft shimmering gold and then a scream cut abruptly through the silence as a girl...
2: fell. Hello, my brown. name is Katherine McGee, and soft I'm soft the author her of her The South cool Report.
1: In just three minutes, the girl would collide with the unforgiving cement of East Avenue. But now, her hair whipped up like a banner, the silk dress snapping around the curves of her body, her bright red mouth frozen in a perfect O of shock. Now, in this instant, She was more beautiful than she had ever been. They say that before death, people's lives... You're
0: listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan, and this is Authored, a brand new show in which I have these conversations with writers that are built around themes. This season, I'm speaking to them about their firsts, their first literary loves, their first characters, about the first time they knew they were going to be published.
1: When the dock monitor found what remained of her body and shakily pinged in a report of the incident, all he knew was that the girl was the first person to fall from the tower in its 25 years. He didn't know who she was or how she'd gotten outside. He didn't know whether she'd fallen or been pushed or whether crushed by the weight of
0: unspoken secrets. She'd decided to jump. Today on the show, I've got with me Katherine McGee, who is the author of the brand new book, The Thousandth Floor.
2: The Thousand Floor is a young adult fiction novel set in New York City a hundred years in the future when most of Manhattan has become an enormous thousand-story skyscraper. And the book opens with an unnamed girl falling from the roof of the tower to her death. And as the reader, you don't know who she is and you don't know why she's falling, whether she looked and fell off or whether she was pushed or whether she decided to jump. And then the novel backtracks two months and you meet five characters in rapid succession and their stories all intertwine in this futuristic uh, glittery super tower. And then the stories converge at the end and essentially all the characters end up on the roof and someone does die. But you don't find out until the very end who that is.
0: Reading that now in 2016 with everything that's being built all over the world, it somehow doesn't seem like too much. It doesn't seem like I'm required to suspend too much disbelief when thinking of a thousand floor tower.
2: I'm so glad to hear that. Certainly in New York, because... Real estate is so limited. I mean, Manhattan is an island basically. You know, there's only, there's nowhere left to go except up. So we are seeing the biggest residential buildings we have ever seen to date in, in Manhattan. Um, and that said, you know, there's a project in China that's being built right now that if it's finished, it will be 480 stories. And that's about halfway there. So, so, you know, it's certainly, it, it is set in the future and it is set in the speculative world, but I hope that it is recognizable to readers as our world.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's stuff going on in the Middle East as well. I think Saudi Arabia wants a kilometer high tower. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but, but, But the title of your book is incredibly evocative. It's very simple, and yet it is evocative. So I was curious as to which came first, the title of your book or the story. Because in my head, it feels like when you have a great title like that, you just want to build a story around it.
2: That The story actually did come first, but the title came not long after. Yes. So I actually used to work in publishing and I felt, as we were discussing briefly earlier, um, I felt very frustrated by the sheer number of dystopian novels that were out for teenagers right now. And I actually really love reading them as a consumer. There are so many that I enjoy, but they are all very dark visions of the future. And whether it's a, you know, a dictator who needs to be assassinated or a caste right. system for oppression, you know, that, that we have given our teenagers this idea that the future is going to be very bleak. And, you know, while it's fiction, I still think that fiction always does intersect quite powerfully with reality. And so I was wondering, you know, is anyone going to write a vision of the future that's optimistic or at the very least realistic. And so then since it seemed clear to me that no one else was doing that, um, I started working on it. As for the title, I knew that I wanted my characters in an enormous skyscraper. And then I was kind of thinking of trying to think of names that sounded good. And, you know, the thousandth floor, as you said, just has such a ring to it. It's so much better than, you know, the 500th floor or the That's 700th right. floor. So so I just back created my tower to be a thousand stories once I landed on that title.
0: And of course, you know, if you were writing this book in the nineteen twenties, a hundred stories would have been a big deal. But now that you're in twenty sixteen, oh, it's it gotta be at least a thousand. Deal.
2: Yes, exactly. You have it, to make it sound, you know, kinda of wild and out there.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And and you're absolutely right about this idea of dystopian futures, because in many ways our own humanity and the troubles we weave for ourselves doesn't require a dictatorship or a caste system or a hunger games.
2: I love that you said that. I think that literature, the fun thing about, I used to study literature in college, isn't? I think you did too, and it, it hasn't really changed at its core since we started writing stories thousands of years ago on tablets. I mean, the stories are still exactly what you said. They're about what people can do to one another. And it's you know what is a relationship? What does it mean to love someone? How can being in love hurt you, and how can it change your life? And so, even though I've, you know, encased those stories in a fun, futuristic world with lots of technology, uh, this at the at at its core, if you stripped away the future of it, this story is very much a story of of humans and how humans relate to one another, and it could exist just as easily in the present day, and it could exist in you know, the 16th century. Um, so the, the setting is a lot of fun, but the setting does not make the story as it does in those big dystopian adventures that we talked about.
0: So tell me about the first character that you wrote for this book or conceived. The
2: first character was the very first, was Avery, the very first chapter. And I will say that Avery is in love. So she lives on the thousandth floor and she seems to have the absolutely perfect life. She was actually genetically engineered to be, you know, flawlessly beautiful. Um, her family is incredibly wealthy since they do live on this penthouse, literally on top of the world. And so she seems to lead this perfectly charmed life, but she is tormented by a dark secret because she wants the one boy that she can never, ever have. And Avery came to me very clearly, I think, because I was thinking a lot about in this future world, what would it mean to seem like you had a perfect life? But, you know, in within that, what what kind of crazy obstacle could I give her between her and this love? And if you read the book, you'll see it's um it is it is a very big obstacle, and it's kind of one of the few obstacles left, I think. Uh, when I was working in publishing, we used to talk a lot about how stories aren't as sharp anymore as they used to be in the past because if you read something like Pride and Prejudice, you know, most of the conflict turns on story beats that would no longer fit in a modern novel because they no, you're right. because you have technology. So it's, you know, the letter hasn't arrived or, you know, Juliet has to commit suicide because she thinks Romeo has died, but Romeo would have sent a text and we would all be fine. Yeah. And then you lose all of the conflict inherently.
0: And, and what was that? And what is that like? Because that must make writing a mystery thriller, especially set a hundred years in the future with even better technology just so much harder to create drama and tension because people will poke holes in it.
2: Exactly. So that's, I mean, I had to do a lot of thinking about the technology, but but for sure, as I said, you'll see the conflicts. I had to really kind of dig deep to find ways to keep my characters apart despite all of the technology. So in many ways, it's just the characters not acting in their own self-interest, even though they think they are. And just the the classic you know trope of human error and human misunderstandings which we can still build but I did I did go to some great lengths to sort of create tension in this world where it seems that everything is flawless and automated and easy and that was actually a lot of fun for me because in a lot of ways I think it's a commentary on the way that people live now I've had multiple reader early readers of the novel actually say you know, I, I, they, they believed it was a commentary on cell phones and how teenagers are addicted to cell phones and texting and Snapchat. And, you know, when you're plugged in all the time, like, what does it do to your relationship? So that, the technology was a lot of fun to work on. And I think it definitely impacts the way the characters act. But at the end of the day, as I said, the the core of this story, I hope, is the characters and how they relate to one another. And the, the fun thing is that because it's a multi-POV novel, so it's the five different characters all intersecting. Yeah, Every single story impacts every other story. And so if one character takes an action, there's a ripple effect through all four of the other characters.
0: So this is the first book in a trilogy. And given what you just yeah. said, I think that makes it harder now because you have to plan across three books. But when when writing the first book, how much of book two and three do you have in mind? Or are you just thinking... I want this to be as self contained as possible with maybe a little, a few loose ends for book two and book three to pick up on.
2: Oh, it was somewhere in the middle. I would say that I have a very clear vision for the end of book three. But, and I had some ideas of specific moments that I really wanted to see in book two. But book two definitely took a little bit more effort going in because while I had the ideas for these few moments, including a kiss at the end of book two that I've been building towards since the start of book one. And I literally was so excited writing it that I had to kind of, I was so happy I had to walk away from my computer because I said, I'm finally here. I'm finally at this kiss. It felt so surreal because I've been thinking about it for about, you know, over two years now. So it was really rewarding to write, but, but aside from clearly that moment, which I'm delighted by, I didn't, you know, I had to get there. So I had to still write a whole book but up until that moment. And so, I worked really hard on that outline because book one was so clear in my mind and book three is quite clear and book two was vague strokes. And so I uh, I probably spent, I spent I think, more time on the outline than I did on the draft. It's crazy as that sounds. I think I spent half a year on that. I mean, I really outlined with my editor and then sent it back for feedback. And I did probably four or five revisions on the outline just because I didn't want this to feel like a bridge book and to feel like book two is just getting you from book one to book three yeah so many trilogies feel that way but i really wanted to feel rewarding on its own you wanted empire strikes back
0: is what you wanted
2: yes yes exactly (laughs) so um so i i think we got there but it took it took putting in more time in the outline and you know, not every writer has to do that. I know that there are certain writers who just jump in and start writing on the blank page. But
0: uh, I hate because those my people. Story
2: is so, I know, I'm very jealous of them. I, I don't have that gift. I, just, I have to really plan first. Avery.
1: Two months earlier. I had a great time tonight, Zay Wagner said as he walked Avery Fuller to the door of her family's penthouse. They'd been down at the New York Aquarium on the 830th floor, dancing in the soft glow of the fish tanks and familiar faces. Not that Avery cared much about the aquarium, but as her friend Eris always said, a party was a party, right? Me too. Avery tilted her bright blonde head toward the retinal scanner and the door unlocked. She offered Zay a smile. Night. He reached for her hand. I was thinking maybe I could come in, since your parents are away and everything. I'm sorry, Avery mumbled, hiding her annoyance with a fake yawn. He'd been finding excuses to touch her all night. She should have seen this coming. I'm exhausted. Avery. Zay dropped her hand and took a step back, running his fingers through his hair. We've been doing this for weeks now. Do you even like me? Avery opened her mouth, then fell silent. She had no idea what to say. Something flickered over Zay's expression. Irritation? Confusion? Got it. I'll see you later. He retreated to the elevator, then turned back his eyes traveling over her once more. You looked really beautiful tonight, he added. The elevator doors closed behind him with a click. Avery sighed and stepped into the grand entryway of her apartment.
0: Tell me how it felt when you first heard that they may be making this into a TV series.
2: Oh, I, my um, agent called me on my cell phone and I definitely screamed aloud and almost dropped
0: my phone. And also by Greg Berlanti, excited. who's like my favorite person right now because he's taken all of my superheroes and given them life.
2: It's so great to have this superhero reemergence on TV. I agree. Greg Berlanti so talented. And I'm just really hopeful that ABC chooses to do something with the options. So they have optioned the book for a television series, which, as you know, means that they now have the right to make a TV show but they are not obligated to make a tv show. That's right. So they will they will decide within the next several months what they're doing and I'm because they have to make decisions pretty soon about what they're doing for fall 2017 and I'm just really really hopeful that that fans of the book become vocal and that you know as they read the book now that it's finally come out because when they optioned it it was just a partial manuscript. I didn't even have a complete manuscript back then. You know, I do think the world is very visual. And so uh, it would lend itself easily t- to TV. And then as we said, because it has multiple characters, it, you already got a cast right there. I think it becomes more of a challenge for books that are really centered on one protagonist to build out for a television. Because if you're going to have sort of an ensemble cast, you have to, the writer, the screenwriter, is incumbent on them to go in and build out these secondary characters. Whereas I've already... You know, I've handed you five characters on a big plate, so you should use them. <laughs> so Correct. And I hope. I really hope they like it.
0: And the possibilities are endless. I mean, there are a thousand flaws to play with.
2: I know the world is very large. Yes.
0: Oh, it's very exciting. I mean, when when I, I, I when I was reading the book, I hadn't yet Googled to find out the news about the option. But then when I did, it just it just exploded in my brain, and I was like, yes, I would totally watch that. There's just you know seven seasons in a movie. Why not?
2: Exactly. I think it would be, it's just a big world that would be really fun to continue to unfold. So, so I'm excited. I hope something happens with it. I, it would be, it would be my dream to get to see these characters, you know, living and breathing as real
0: people. Catherine, you used to work in publishing before this, like you said, and I wanted to ask you, what was the first book that came across your desk in publishing that you were really excited about? Do you remember?
2: I will never forget. It was a book called Starcross. It's also a young adult trilogy by Josephine Angelini. And Josie is now a friend of mine. Uh, the books are amazing. They came out from Harper Collins a few years ago. I think the first came out in 2011 and <clears throat> the second in 2012, 2013. And the story basically follows, um, it follows Helen of Troy reincarnated in the modern world. So it's Greek mythology Uh, but a big romance in modern times. And it like The Thousand Floor, it has kind of a large ensemble cast of characters, which is really fun. So there's sort of secondary characters whose stories become more and more important as the trilogy goes on. I really love those books. They, um, yeah, they've clearly stuck with me. I think what I liked is that unlike some YA, you know, they were really literary in tone. Mm -hmm. They, They really kind of called upon their readers to, have read the greek myths to know be familiar with the trojan war and i actually used to study classics i i read i did latin all the way through the aeneid and then that's when i by the time you had to get to catullus that was when i stopped <laughs> but i really loved latin and so those books were fun for me to work on and i got to edit them while i was an editor at harper
0: well with that in mind what was the first piece of good advice you ever gave a budding writer and Was that something you followed as well when you started writing?
2: I always tell budding writers to read as much as they possibly can. Just read everything, no matter the genre. I think that a danger is sort of to fall into reading the same type of thing over and over, whether it's always young adult or always science fiction, you know, always memoirs. If you want to write, it's important to keep stretching your writing muscle by. You know, familiarizing yourself with different things and different voices and different ways of thought. I have tried to do that. I have mixed success, but I will say I (laughs) I love reading historicals and science fiction. So I I kind of gravitate towards very um, heavily detailed, you know, sharply drawn worlds that feel vast. So everything from Game of Thrones to, you know, kind of like a Star Trek type series. I'm currently reading Neil Stevenson if you've ever read his books and they're big. They're oh, really fun.
0: I'm, I'm, but, I'm yeah. trawling my way through Seven Eves.
2: I haven't... I'm still on Snow Crash. I just... Oh, I which just is great. And now I'm reading Snow Crash. It's so good. So, uh, actual trick though when I'm writing and I feel really stuck is I do go read things that are very different from what I'm reading and so sometimes I just stop and read part of a Shakespeare. I get out one of my old school textbooks or... Um, You know, I've even been known to go just, like, read a comic book or go on, like, a French website and read. It's nice to speak other languages, too, because I think the cadences are different, the vocabularies are different, and it, it really opens up your own ability to communicate in English just by hearing another language or reading it. So I do that. It's a funny trick. Um, but I've heard other writers do that too. One of them said he goes and reads the back of cereal boxes. <laughs> Fantastic! Like, you have to do something to get yourself out of that. If you're in a rut about your own language, you know it doesn't help you to read more things that are like what you write. You have to go really, you know, find something else to sort of bump you out of your writing rut. So that's that's my little trick, and I, I do think the more that you read and the more variety that you read, the better writer you will become.
0: Do you remember the first book you ever fell in love with?
2: If we're not including picture books, because I definitely had a book called The Big Red Barn (laughs) that I read a lot. But if we're going to chapter books, I really loved the novels of Tamora Pierce, which are these fantasy novels about a female knight in sort of this medieval fantasy world. And I just loved them. The she the character goes on a lot of adventures, but she's very she's I think one of the first really strong. Um, female heroines, you know, in this kind of middle grade space. She, the fun thing about her was that she was hiding, for most of the series, she was hiding that she was a woman. So she was basically disguised as a man in training in this castle. And it was so, there was just a lot of fun tension because you, know, you were always worried that her secret was going to get discovered. And I think it was, I love having her as sort of a badass role model, if that makes sense.
0: I have never read that. I need to look that up.
2: They're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you to go to a dark place. Tell me, because writing, and especially writing novels, is 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 all about working through failures. So tell me about your first failure in writing The Thousand Floor. At which point, what, what was that big, major roadblock?
2: This is tricky. I want to say instead that my first failure was actually a different idea that I took to my boss. So my story about The Thousand Floor is that, as you know, I, I started working on the idea. I felt very excited about it. I took it down. I basically wrote the prologue and chapter one, and I took it to my boss. And was and he just said, I like this, I don't know what it is, but I think it's interesting. Keep going. Mm -hmm. But before that, a year and a half earlier, I had done something similar with an idea that got killed. And that is actually my big failure. And that still makes me sad because I loved this concept. I won't really get into it except that it was kind of an alternate reality concept. And I did the exact same thing. I wrote I wrote a chapter and I took it to my boss. And that was when he first started to realize that I wanted to write. And he said, this is really neat. You know, I, I'm not quite sure I get it. Keep going. I wrote a second chapter. And then there was a lot of talk that, you know, I might have to quit my job and we're going to sign this project. And I got really excited. And then ultimately, um, the my writing sample and the concept went to the higher up people at Warner Brothers, and they were not very interested in it. And so I had to have this sort of, this really difficult conversation with my boss where he said, listen, I think that you're a good writer. This concept is not right for us right now. You know, you can, you can keep working on it on your own if you want, but we're not going to be involved. And if you want to work with us on something else, you know, keep going, keep, keep searching for a different idea. And that I did do that but I definitely was disheartened for a while because I felt like I had really put myself out there and writing is so personal. And, you know, I, I, I just had to get a lot better at handling rejection. And I I think I really have now I take notes much better, Mm -hmm. but it's really painful those first times to have somebody say, you know, to get a piece of paper back that has your words on it. And you feel as though you've poured your heart into it and then there's red pen all over it and you're just like it makes you want to cry a little bit and so that that was hard and that was a setback and you know my boss actually brought that up the other day or my my old boss is not my agent i should stop calling him that <laughs> it's old habits die hard of you know five years of working for him
0: and, and but, what did he yeah. say what did he say when he brought it up
2: he said i still like that idea and he said maybe we can bring it back someday but C B T V was just really not interested at the time and And I was still a little bit young and I think I wasn't quite as ready to be a full-time writer as I was then. And so I stayed and worked in the industry for another, you know, a little over a year before I, before I went truly back to writing. And I dabbled in a few things in the meantime, but as you can see, I'm clearly a little bit picky about what I write. And so I need to, you know, I'm sort of working on an idea for a new series for after the thousandth floor, but I have been, you know, I, I have rejected far more ideas than I have been interested in so part of that is just my maybe I need to open myself up and write some things that I'm not sure about yet um, it's it's a very it's a luxury to try to keep you know rejecting ideas that you come up with so we'll see what happens but but it was it's hard and I would say to aspiring writers everybody gets rejected the first time.
0: Well look on the bright side Catherine after you are the best-selling author of the Thousand Floor Trilogy and you know Emmy Award winning TV series, you can do whatever the damn well you please.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. My (laughs) historical series is coming back.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It'll be great. (laughs) One last thing uh, before I before I let you go. Do you remember the first the, the first piece of science fiction that you ever read? Because reading this book gave me strong feelings of science fiction.
2: Yes, I have read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, kind of all blurring together. You know what series I really loved was A Wrinkle in Time. I don't know if that counts as science fiction, but it, it, I feel like it is. You know, and the, the characters basically use these tesseracts, which are these loopholes in the kind of space-time of the universe to travel around. And it's very evocative, and it's a very beautiful and richly drawn world. And the interesting thing about it is, there is a very clear evil. You know that basically the premise is these children have to go on an adventure to destroy this kind of evil power. And um, as in the child's mind, I just felt I think that it's very reassuring to feel that evil is crystallized into one particular place, and you can go defeat it, and then everyone is safe. Um, I love that series, and I actually I should find them. I wrote a whole booklet a whole notebook full of sequels to that book that were in that same world of those characters going on adventures and you know I don't even know what my character what they did in my stories anymore but I just remember feeling very called by that series to sort of write this science fiction so I think that was definitely the first I've read so much good science fiction in the intermediate times and I I watch it on tv I still watch Battlestar Galactica which I love um, but definitely Madeline Lingle was, was the first.
0: Fantastic. Catherine, thank you so much for talking to me today.
2: Thank you so much. I had so much fun, and I, I really enjoyed getting to chat about the book. And I thank you for reading it, and I'm so glad to hear
0: that you enjoyed it. That was Catherine McGee. The Thousandth Floor was just released last week, and you can find yourself a copy at all good bookstores. You've been listening to Authored on Bookmark BFM 89.9.